Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. Our guest for the second of two podcasts is Dr. Cheryl Healton, the founding president and CEO of the American Legacy Foundation in Washington, D.C. For many years, she's also served on the faculty at Columbia University School of Public Health and there has held various administrative positions, and she's also been associate dean of the medical school at Columbia. Um, a pioneer and a hero in the public health arena for her work against tobacco. It's very much um, my pleasure to have her here, so thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kelly. I'm happy to be here. So in the first of our two podcasts, we talked about the history of changes that occurred in the tobacco field. Tremendous public health victories with half the number of people smoking now than used to be the case. Those were hard-won victories. It took a, a variety of heroic people who had the courage to stand up to the industry and political pressure that they were able to mount. But the end story was a very successful one. And I'd like to talk now about the application of some of the lessons that we've learned from tobacco into the area of food and food policy. So if we could, let's begin with maybe just some summary bullet points about your ideas about what it takes to create social change. So I'll begin with the following premise. In the, in the, the, for the problem of obesity, we've got mass, massive social change is going to be necessary because the public has been completely socialized into believing large portions are good. They're marketed too relentlessly by the industry. Food is priced in a way that, that makes the unhealthy food highly attractive. Um, the marketing to kids is egregious and relentless. Uh, there are a number of these sort of things that have occurred. So the food environment is so different than what it used to be uh, to the point where we call it a toxic food environment. In the presence of this environment, people get sick. It's reliable, completely predictable. And it was this big social change that occurred in the tobacco area. So I'm wondering what do you think some of the, the bullet points might be of what's required to create that change or what are some of the lessons you've learned? Well, I think the lessons that I learned were learned long before I came on the tobacco scene. I think they're lessons that go way back in the history of the United States. But probably first and foremost is understanding that for-profit companies like the tobacco industry or the alcohol industry or the food industry um, have at the core of their philosophy maximizing stockholder value and company worth and the wealth of those who are at the top. So if they're, if they're profits making profits compete with public health, it seems pretty clear what's going to win. That's right. And so so the problem there, as you point out, and that's exactly the way to describe it, is that when you have that kind of inherent conflict of interest, regulation is the only alternative. And of course, so the lessons learned are, one, they need to be regulated in new and different ways. Two, they will vehemently resist it. Three, they will use political power um, and litigation strategies in order to resist it. And sadly, and maybe even unfortunately, unlike big tobacco, uh, they are more dispersed in terms of their corporate presence around the country now than tobacco is today. Um, One of the key strategies that one of the major tobacco companies used was buying up two other major enterprises, Miller Beer and Kraft Foods, as a way to, in their own words, in their own internal documents, you know, have a beachhead in every community. And by doing so, have 
increased enhanced political power. So they will use their political power. They have the advantage over tobacco and alcohol and many other products in that food people need to live. And so fundamentally, food is important. Um, But of course, there's food and then there's food, including food that really isn't food. And a lot of what is out there uh, really isn't food. And I guess if I were trying to mount a framework for communication about it, um, I would talk about not food. <laughs> um, that, that actually, that's been proposed. It's a very interesting concept. All right, so let's focus on this, the behavior of the industry and how much the industry can be trusted for a moment. The food industry at the moment is in full self-regulatory pursuit of the public trust and legislative trust. So they, they say, we can, you can trust us, we can regulate ourselves, government doesn't need to come in and do this kind of thing. Now, some people have pointed out that this is destined to fail because the food industry is in the business of selling more food. If they sell more food, the population is going to become even more overweight. Now, the industry can claim that we're just as well off if we sell better food for people if they demand it. But there's a problem. People don't overeat better food, and they do overeat the unhealthy food. So the industry is in this situation where they can say that they have public health concerns and they're trying to make the changes, but it seems from some people's perspective at least that this fundamentally competes with their needs to need to maximize profits. So when they say you can trust us and we can regulate ourselves, I know there was a history of this in tobacco, and what can we learn from that? Well, you can learn one thing, that if they're smart enough, they can forestall regulatory control, meaningful regulatory control over themselves for a very, very long time. The tobacco industry just became regulated by the FDA. Prior to that, it was very loosely Uh, regulated by tobacco, ATF, alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. So that's the first lesson. The first lesson is that it will be a long battle, potentially, unless, and I think the big change now for anyone who's getting into the public health change world is that the role of the Internet and social media and having flattened the universe Um, I think Arab Spring is a great example of just seeing what social media can do in a short period of time at a low price point in a a cost-effective way. So I think that the, the past does not need to predict the future in terms of how things work with food. And I also do think that the reality is somewhere in the middle between the concept of you can't make money delivering good food, Whole Foods doesn't have all fabulous food in it, but it certainly is a far cry better than um, a lot of other places. It's, you know, humorously called whole paycheck because it is so expensive. So clearly the regulatory environment is going to be crucial to change the price structure, and it's going to be particularly important for people who are at the lower socioeconomic strata that presently either don't have physical access to um, nutritious food or if they do cannot afford it. Well, let me ask another question about whether change is likely to occur from the top down, namely federal government action percolating down to states and communities, or whether the reverse will be true, that changes get made at the grassroots first and federal government catches up later. Well, I think the tobacco story clearly is the latter. 
that um, the activity happens at the grassroots, um, and and in fact, the federal government was very late to the game. Now, late to the game in terms of regulatory um, assertion, I would say not so much so in terms of, you know, calling the alarm out that um, smoking is bad for one's health. That said, the proportion of the of the NCI budget, the National Cancer Institute budget, that is focused on smoking is extraordinarily minuscule compared to the magnitude of the public health threat that it represents. I don't know how analogous the situation is with NIH and obesity-related issues. I suspect not quite as, as bad as it was with tobacco. You know, not as much as you'd, you'd think. You know, okay, if you look so. at the way the National Institutes of Health have spent money over the years on the obesity problem, a tremendous amount has gone into research on its treatment, pharmacological advances, behavioral approaches, community programs, surgery, a lot on the, the biological vulnerabilities to obesity. Molecular biology work has been funded for years and years. But anything that would take on the industry or anything that would lead to public policy change has been pretty conspicuously missing. Well, it's then, starting to change, but it's taken a long time. Well, then, Kelly, that would be, you know, very analogous to the situation with tobacco. There was <clears throat> really only about one or two significant initiatives that were federally funded. One was a community-based assist program to demonstrate if you did everything you could to try to change tobacco use in a community, what would the impact be? And then another one was focused on the impact of state and local policy change on consumption of tobacco. But the overwhelming majority, just as you're describing in obesity research, was focused not on public health and public policy levers, uh, but on um, important, but the kind of work that is not going to create a sea change. And essentially what we have now is a ticking time bomb with respect to obesity. Um, I just looked at the overall statistics for deaths due to alcohol, obesity, and tobacco, and it's about 1.3 million for all of them combined. That That's probably... It could be higher. That's probably the mid-range figure, uh, including in that physical inactivity. So it's physical inactivity, alcohol, obesity, and tobacco, about 1.3 million of 2.4 million deaths a year. So that's an enormous piece of the um, premature death in America, and, and we're, really, we're really not addressing it. Um, so it's not going to be easy. Uh, the, tab- the, uh, the food industry will tear a page from the playbook of the um, tobacco industry, and they may even hire the same lawyers. <laughs> and there's some evidence of that, and some of the same <laughs> ad front groups, ad agencies, and, and the like. Um, if um, if you, you just take a hypothetical foundation, for example, that might be spending money on trying to address the obesity problem, it sounds like from what you're saying that the the money would be best spent now trying to get things uh, organized locally and at state levels um, because changes can occur more readily there than at the federal level. Is that fair to say? Very much so, and I think probably one of the greatest examples of uh, an enormous public health success story was Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's work in the tobacco arena uh, with the creation of Tobacco-Free Kids, um, which they initiated and funded for at least a decade and the result of that has, has been a true accelerator of uh, the decline in smoking in the U.S. and a, a, a truly transformative impact 
on policy. We need to have something akin to that, uh, both for food and for alcohol, in, in my opinion. And we don't have that for either. Um, and if we don't get it and get it soon, we're going to pay an enormous price. And that alone is not the answer. I'm not saying that's the single magic bullet, um, but it certainly is one one approach. And I, actually, I think there was a recent study, a recent book that came out that that said that um, the tobacco policy work of RWJ was really among the top philanthropic um, impact work in the history of American philanthropy. Oh, that's remarkable. Well, I think most people know that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation has been deeply involved in work on childhood obesity as well. It'll be interesting to see how they take that, given that they had that experience with tobacco that was so successful. Um, how important in tobacco were changes in price of the product brought about by things like taxes? Enormously important, um, and particularly so in the case of tobacco with uh, young consumers. So a price increase has about double the effect on a, on a teenager as an adult, uh, could be quite different with respect to food. Uh, the only issue with the price um, modifications has been that frequently the tax happens, and if you're in a, in a high inflation environment and the tax is fixed, it washes out within a few years. And so it's very important when you set these tax structures that you somehow link them to the underlying economy. And it's almost like an, having an inflator on your social security check or mm -hmm. something. If you don't have that, uh, they, 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 they have a lessened impact over time. So there's a lot that can be done with tax policy and food. And there's a lot, I think, that can be done on the subsidy side as well. You, you can make I mean, I think this is obvious. You can make things that are not healthy for you far more expensive or not available. I think there are classes of food that probably should, simply should not be available. Um, alcohol pops, I think, are a great example of something that shouldn't be available. And then um, there should be flat-out subsidies of food that are far more healthy but for a large swath of the population um, not affordable. There's a lot of interest in the obesity field now about the possibility of changing food prices. One is the concern about subsidies that go into producing unhealthy food, and then also are just the, the bare facts that healthy food costs more than unhealthy foods, and things like sugared beverages are enormously inexpensive and attractive to people. Um, how important was the concept of addiction in the tobacco fight when it became clear that nicotine was addictive. How important was that in the national debate? I think it's very important in the national debate in shifting the focus from the consumer uh, solely to the consumer plus the industry. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the typical American does not care for smokers. I am a former smoker. I know how very, very difficult it is to quit and I also saw members of my family struggle to quit and succeed, struggle to quit and not succeed and die as a result. And I saw them die having quit 20 years prior. Uh, so I know how deadly it is and I know how, how addictive it is. I think more and more Americans are aware of the addictiveness of both alcohol and tobacco. And that is beginning to shape how they feel about public policy. So I think the addictiveness is an important factor. And I think um, from my conversations with you and others that this sort of golden triangle of salt, fat, and sugar is turning out to be something that 
at a minimum, there's a, a Pavlovian response to that you get used to a certain combination of food and it is so habitual that it crosses a threshold into an addictive state. You're exactly right. There's growing research on this topic. We held a conference at Yale several years ago on food and addiction, brought together addiction researchers and nutrition researchers to see whether this was a, a robust phenomenon and where the research was going on, and it was very interesting. And the metaphor that the drug abuse researchers use is that these substances hijack the brain, of course, and the question is, does food have the capacity to hijack the brain? Not only the marketing of it and the the way people are socialized by the industry to think about food, but the biological effects on the brain and other parts of the body. And Um, My own instincts tell me that this is going to be a very important concept as we go forward. Another question I wanted to ask is there were some interesting um, groups of people that got involved in the tobacco thing, and one especially interesting group were the state attorneys general. I'm wondering if you could give a short description of the role that they played in this, and then then we could talk about whether there might be parallels with uh, nutrition and obesity issues. Well, I think the, 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 the entry of the attorneys general into the tobacco arena uh, was occasioned by many different things, but probably chief among them is the role of the attorney general in, the, in consumer protection. In most states, if not all states, the AG office has a consumer protection office. So if consumers are being mistreated in some fundamental way, you know, they're the place to go. And they have a rich history of being, um, I think the word that I would use is um, smartly aggressive about what they do. And uh, they are quick studies. (laughs) And they are capable of collective action across bipartisan lines. They've had some issues around the Republicans and the Democrats, and they clearly don't agree on all policy. But they do agree on the importance of protecting the consumer. And so that's the space that put them in the tobacco issue. Um, And they're particularly sensitive to protecting youthful consumers. And I think one of the biggest and strongest analogies between alcohol, tobacco, and processed foods is the roots of the behavior in childhood in response to aggressive, child-centered advertising. Now, alcohol and tobacco have to fly a little under the radar screen uh, from where they were in the past, um, but that they are continuing to market to children is irrefutable. Even though they claim they don't. Even though they claim they don't, exactly. So there's a perfect parallel with this as well. A lot of the companies, uh, food companies, have made pledges to, well, first some say that they don't market at all to children under a certain age, like age 12, and others have said we'll only market our healthier products. But the research that gets done to see whether they're holding true to their promises doesn't reflect very positively on their practices. And kids are getting exposed to tremendous amount of marketing for unhealthy foods, a lot of it by companies that say they're not doing it. I would think one strategy would be... um if there were a litigation approach that could be undertaken, and maybe it already has, that would create disclosure of some of their internal communications. Because I have been at meetings where people are very 
focused on food and alcohol and tobacco policy have understood how what a breakthrough it was to have access to the internal mindset and the decision-making process as reflected in internal documents, of which there are literally now for tobacco billions available. There's been talk about that in the, the food and nutrition field, but none of it's happened yet. It'll be very interesting to see if it does. There have been a few um, attorney general victories in the food area. Uh, Vermont's attorney general, Bill Sorrell, has been very involved with this and done terrific work and has put together a consortium coalition of people in Vermont to work on the obesity area. But another very important victory happened here in Connecticut with our attorney general, Richard Blumenthal, before he got elected to the Senate, where using consumer protection law, went after a program called Smart Choices, which was a program the industry had developed and that made, made products like Cocoa Krispies and Lucky Charms qualify for this Smart Choices label. And he made the claim that this was deceptive and misleading and the attorney general had a role here. And his action was, was probably the key thing that brought down that program very fast. And it seemed like it was the publicity the bad publicity that came about as a result of the action that the attorney general was taking rather than the legal action itself that seemed to have the biggest impact. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the the attention that the AGs bring to this in addition to whatever legal process might play out. Well, I'm certainly not surprised to hear that Bill Sorrell and uh, and A.G. Blumenthal were in the vanguard in this because both are quintessential examples of public service-focused attorneys general. I think that there were two reasons um, that the response to that action was so swift. One was, as you point out, the downside public relations negative uh, elements. But the second is that any industry has to sit back and ask themselves, do I want to go down the path that the tobacco industry went down uh, with the attorneys general? And my guess is that the food industry does not want to go down that path, that they do not want um, a national foundation created to combat their negative impact, that they do not want um, billions of dollars shipped to states to counteract their impact. And so they may have responded very rapidly simply because they want to somehow distinguish themselves at the outset from the tobacco industry. And that can be a very important tool as you go forward um, because, as you know, there remain huge issues that are appropriate for the AGs to become involved in with respect to um, marketing junk food to um, young people. I mean, that space alone could keep the AGs busy for the rest of their careers. Oh, it sure could. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, and boy, we could go on for hours about parallels and lessons learned and things like that. Um, I'm one of the people in our field who who believes that the people that have worked on the tobacco problem have been true public health heroes, have had to exhibit tremendous courage in the face of threats and all sorts of other things that have occurred, um, and have won some incredibly important victories, and that there are so many lessons that can be learned and applied not, not, not everything is a perfect parallel, but a lot is, and that those lessons are really important for people in other areas of public health to learn. So it's very kind of you to come and share your expertise and to share some of those lessons with us. 
And uh, I hope this will be informative to the people who listen. I suspect it will. So thank you very much. Happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So our guest was Dr. Cheryl Healton, founding president and CEO of the American Legacy Foundation, faculty member at Columbia University School of Public Health, and um, long-term pioneer in anti-tobacco campaigns. Please visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org. There you'll find a variety of excellent resources on food and food policy issues, including a newsletter that gets dispatched every month at no cost, of course, um, links to other podcasts with visitors who have been to the Rudd Center. Uh, we now have over 100, and they're excellent resources, and, of course, a variety of other materials that might be beneficial. Thank you very much.